Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The indictment now unsealed what the Justice Department says as it reveals specific charges against former President Trump and how Trump is responding. Former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis joins us to break down the charges Trump is facing and how legitimate they are. Find out why she says this is more serious than the New York indictment. We'll also hear from a former prosecutor. He explains why he thinks the case should be dismissed and what we can expect to see next. Congressman Andy Ogles joins us to explore the impact of the indictment on Trump's campaign. He shares his reactions to the charges. And new details emerge on the alleged bribery scheme involving President Biden. We hear from an investigative reporter who puts the recent findings into context. A federal indictment unsealed today charges former President Trump with making false statements and concealing documents. But Trump insists he's innocent as Republicans rush to his defense. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Iris, what's the latest here? Good evening, Tiff. So we know that President Trump is now the first ever former U.S. president to face federal charges. And today the Justice Department released an indictment document including 37 counts alleging that President Trump basically made false statements, retained classical and classified information, as well as obstructed justice. And here is Jack Smith, the special counsel, announcing the release of the indictment document today, as well as emphasizing that Trump is innocent until proven guilty. Watch. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. My office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. And it's very interesting to see that indictment document actually even contained images trying to show that documents were found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. But Trump basically is very defending himself, basically saying that he's an innocent man who has done nothing wrong. So on Friday afternoon, he again called it a witch hunt and basically said that one of the boxes actually only contained newspapers and magazines, as was shown in the picture. And that's after, of course, on Thursday night, he responded to the indictment by calling himself an innocent man in this video. Watch. A boxes hoax, just like the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, and all of the others. This has been going on for seven years. They can't stop because it's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent. And now, Democratic lawmakers are all saying that no one should be above the law. But we are seeing Republicans basically coming to Trump's defense very quickly. For example, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, after speaking out yesterday, again spoke out today, saying that this is going to disrupt this nation because it goes to the core of equal justice for all, which is not being shown today. And we also see that the House Judiciary Committee, which is being led by House Republicans, sent a letter to the Justice Department today pointing out that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton or sitting President Joe Biden 
weren't indicted at all for their alleged mishandling of classified documents. So basically saying that this is a double standard applied and a weaponization of the federal agency. And of course, we're also seeing that President Biden here is not trying to basically actively get involved here. So today he said that he's not going to comment at all, but he did say that he has not spoken to Attorney General Merrick Garland before the indictment or he's not planning to speak to him afterwards either. But of course, all eyes are now on Tuesday, which is when former President Trump is set to appear in court again, and this time in Miami, Florida. Tiff. Iris, thank you for those updates. And Trump isn't the only one charged in the indictment. One of his personal aides, Walt Nada, is as well. The special counsel alleges that Trump directed Nada to conceal boxes of documents. And Trump is adjusting his legal team to deal with the new charges. He wrote on Truth Social that he's now represented by Todd Blanche and a law firm to be named later. Trump thanked his old attorneys and said new lawyers will be joining his team soon. He said the shakeup is because the case is based in Florida. And reactions are pouring in over former President Trump's latest indictment. I spoke with former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis to help us break down the charges and their legitimacy. Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Jenna, you've read this 48-page indictment here. What are the general allegations? Well, overall, the 37-count indictment is very serious, and it alleges that uh, President Trump and also one of his aides uh, mishandled classified documents, and the DOJ is prosecuting this under the Espionage Act as well as uh, some conspiracy charges basically relating to uh, how they interacted with uh, the FBI when there was a discovery that classified documents were held at Mar-a-Lago. And on that serious part, a lot of people are calling this a witch hunt, but how serious is this? Are there legitimate allegations here? Well, I think the court of public opinion is reacting to this indictment very similarly to how they did the Manhattan DA's indictment, that whether you love or hate President Trump is the basis upon which you think this is a witch hunt and a political prosecution versus whether you think this is very serious. I can imagine if this was former President Obama, we would have the exact inverse reaction from all of the political pundits. So from a purely legal perspective and fundamental fairness perspective, I think that this indictment is much more serious than the Alvin Bragg uh, Manhattan DA indictment, only because this doesn't appear to be as politically motivated and is based in uh, allegations that once there were uh, classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago, then it was President Trump and his aides and how they responded to that discovery and interacted with the DOJ. So it's really just a basis of their conduct, not necessarily that they were specifically targeted. So I think that there is a very different legal question here. Now, whether or not that conduct rises to the level of criminal activity is the key question. And just to follow on that key question, if it rises to criminal activity, what would make it criminal? Well, uh, this is where the the classified documents and whether or not they were classified, whether or not President Trump shared that uh, when he was not able to lawfully, and whether or not uh, the DOJ can fulfill the elements of the conspiracy angle that is charged here. So I think that as uh, we look more at this indictment and as more is discussed and debated, uh, really the question is going to become whether or not there was intent to go against the law and whether or not the DOJ can fulfill their burden of proof to show that there was intent and there was an actual criminal conduct element here.
And Jenna, what kind of defense could the Trump team mount, in your opinion? Well, so far, uh, their lawyers have uh, really mounted a fundamental fairness defense, which I don't think will be substantively a complete defense. Now, whether or not Joe Biden or anyone else, uh, like Vice President Mike Pence, the former vice president, uh, should also be charged related to their own handling of classified materials, really is immaterial uh, to whether or not President Trump um, ultimately is guilty of the conduct that the DOJ alleges. And so that's really all that I've heard from uh, the Trump legal team in terms of the media, but I'm sure that they are going to mount more substantive defenses in some of their motions that are forthcoming. So uh, they, of course, are going to do that to the best of their ability, and I look forward to seeing their motions as they submit them. Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for your time. And for more analysis on the Trump indictment, NTD's Arlene Richards spoke with former prosecutor David Shostokis to find out what we can expect to happen next. Former President Trump has now been indicted for the second time in just two months. I spoke with former prosecutor David Shostokis to get his thoughts on it. Can you tell our viewers what we can expect to happen next? Well, certainly uh, the next thing that's uh, scheduled to happen is on Tuesday afternoon, um, the president is uh, to appear in uh, federal court in Miami, uh, at which point he'll be what we would call arraigned. That is, he would be uh, informed officially, formally of what the charges are. It's uh, fairly typical to, uh, in those circumstances, to uh, waive uh, what they call formal reading so that they don't have to read through the from what i understand i've heard that it's a 47 page document so that they don't have to read the whole document typically um, the um, attorney will get up and say uh, your honor we waive formal reading and um, enter a plea of not guilty and so that would be the first uh, first exchange that would take place in in the court at that point he said many cases involving the Presidential Records Act give the president full authority to be the final classifier of government information. He thinks Trump's legal team should try to dismiss the case. In terms of the Espionage Act, they have to, the, the, the state or the federal government will have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Number one, of course, that um, Trump had the documents, which presumably he did. Uh, number two, that it was a, um, in fact, a document that these documents were in fact related to national defense. Number three, that he was not authorized in any way, shape or form to have the documents. And number four, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually knew he wasn't authorized to have the documents. These are all very huge hurdles uh, for, this, uh, for this prosecution to take place. But he admits that the reported tape recording of Trump allegedly admitting to holding a document he didn't declassify could be a piece of evidence used to prove the fourth prong, that he knew he wasn't authorized to have that document. But what about President Biden's classified documents case? And in terms of the mishandling of the documents, how is what President Trump did different from what President Biden did? From my understanding, documents in Mr. discovered in Mr. Biden's various locations from the Penn Center to uh, apparently his garage and for all I know his trunk uh, didn't arise from when he was president. They arose from when he was vice president and United States senator. He held offices that, that do not have the same kind of uh, authority to uh, either declassify or um, uh, determine whether something's a uh, presidential record or a personal record.
In, in which case, um, the Biden case uh, seems to me that it would be much more cut and dried that he was in violation of uh, these, these um, uh, per, perhaps the Espionage Act uh, and uh, failure to take care of these things. David Shostokas, thank you for your time. Joining us next to share his reactions to Trump's indictment, we have Congressman Andy Ogles of Tennessee. Congressman Ogles explores how the indictment will impact Trump's presidential campaign and his popularity in the polls. Congressman Andy Ogles, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So following this indictment on Trump, what do you think are his best next steps? Well, I think uh, it, it is to do what he's been doing, continue to tell the truth, tell the story that the American people want to hear. I mean, we have an economy in crisis. We have a border in crisis. We have a foreign policy that is a disaster. And uh, all of this happened under Joe Biden's watch. Uh, the, these situations, these problems were not a problem under Trump. And I think, quite frankly, that that indictment that you just held up virtually guarantees that he'll be the Republican nominee and that he will be president in November. And Congressman, after the New York indictment, Trump actually raised $12 million for his campaign. How do you see this second indictment impacting his 2024 campaign? Well, I would I would assume, and time will tell, of course, that it'll have a similar impact. But here's the thing. I, know, I can only speak for my district, uh, Middle Tennessee, kind of the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, conservatism. Uh, we're ticked off. This is clearly an attempt by the Biden administration, by the Justice Department. This is election interfering. And I'll, and I'll also say, any Republican candidate who is running for office or thinks that they're running for office and they don't immediately criticize the Justice Department, you are unfit for office and don't even bother putting your name on the ballot. Donald Trump is going to be our next president. It's time for everyone to unite by him and, and to put this administration to bed, and probably where Joe Biden is anyway, taking a nap. And on that point, we just had three new GOP candidates announce their bid this week. How do you think their calculations are after this? Well, again, this is one of those, uh, the more candidates in the race, the better it is for Donald Trump. I was actually texting with him last night. Uh, I think his, uh, despite the indictment, I think his spirits uh, are high. Uh, and he's a fighter. I mean, I think he actually, I don't know that anyone enjoys this process, but I think it's one of those that gives him great focus. Uh, and quite frankly, as it would me, it ticks me off. And I think you're going to see him coming out swinging. And again, you know, when you have someone like uh, Chris Christie, saying that these are unforced errors. I think this is his attempt, Chris Christie's, uh, chance or tr trying to be irrelevant at a time when he's irrelevant. And speaking of the polls, it seems Trump is dominating all the polls right now. Mm -hmm. How do you see this indictment impacting that? Is it going to increase his popularity or negatively? Well, again, go, go back to history. You know, you look at Russiagate. Uh, he told you it was false. He, he told you it was trumped up, no pun intended. Uh, then guess what we found out? that it was, uh, it was totally fake, it was garbage. He told you that Joe Biden was uh, corrupt, that it, they are really and truly a, cr a criminal enterprise. And guess what we found out, thanks to Comer and the Oversight Committee, they've been taking millions of dollars in bribes for the evidence that's been produced. And so I think this is going to uh, just clearly, uh, this is a pattern that the American people have seen. And when he says that this is truly a targeted attack, I think people are gonna believe it. Congressman Andy Ogles, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Thank you. 
With all the attention on Trump, some are saying this is a distraction from the alleged corruption scheme involving President Biden. Lawmakers reviewed a series of unclassified documents shared by the FBI today. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene calls it deeply troubling. To dive into this, NTD's Jack Bradley speaks with Jeff Carlson, the co-host of Truth Over News on Epoch TV. Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So the FBI has just provided documents to the House Oversight Committee regarding an alleged bribery scheme involving Biden while he was vice president. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, for one thing, it's been a long time in coming. This has been kind of a long, drawn-out saga. But what we had happen was yesterday, Marjorie Taylor Greene gave an impromptu press conference where she detailed notes that she jotted down after seeing this FBI document, a 1023. Um, and basically held a press, press conference making some of the more salient details public. And what really came out of this was confirmation of what we were expecting in that it's alleged that there was two separate bribes that were made, uh, one of $5 million to one Biden and $5 million to another unknown Biden. And these bribes were made in connection with the Ukrainian company Burisma, of which Hunter Biden had been a board member since 2014, um, well, gosh, I mean, his compensation went down in 2000, but for a number of years. And Biden, Biden Sr., Joe Biden, overlaid with that. And so can you take us through this sequence of events uh, about what we know so far about the Biden's family's ties to Burisma? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a very interesting coincidence of timing, because what happened is, uh, you know, if everybody remembers the maiden event, that was the period at which Joe Biden was brought in by Victoria Nuland, who's currently in his, his staff, right, in his administration now, was brought in to help deal with Ukraine. So Joe Sr., Joe Biden, became the official point man on Ukraine. At the exact same time, that was when Hunter was appointed to the board of Burisma. And Hunter was drawing, of course, a very large salary. I think it was $83,000 a month. It's whatever a million divided by 12 is, is what he was being paid. Um, and there was a lot of uh, allegations that the whole reason they hired Hunter was to help with investigations that were being done on the Ukrainian side into corruption at Burisma and Burisma's owner, Nikola Zolchevsky. Now, those investigations subsided, but then they heated back up again with the appointment of Viktor Shokin, a, a Ukrainian prosecutor who had been in place, had gone out of, had retired, and then was brought back in. He really refocused the investigation into Burisma. And this is where the Bidens come back into the, into the story. On November 2nd, 2015, there was an email that was sent out by a gentleman by the name of Vadim Pazarsky. And he's a close advisor. Some even said he was head of board of directors, but we believe him to be like you know, the closest advisor to Mikola Zolchevsky. And he'd sent an email to Hunter along with a couple other people directing them to effectively shut down the investigation into Burisma. And it, it actually did more than that, um, reading this email with hindsight. He was basically complaining that not enough had been done and not enough high-level U.S. officials had been brought to bear to, to bring down and stop this investigation. And it's, it's worth noting, you know, you've got Hunter on the board of direct, directors of Burisma, and you have another official, a close advisor to the owner of Burisma, who's issuing edicts to Hunter Biden. 
you know, the whole reason of having a board of directors is they're sort of this independent board that supposedly oversees the company. And here's Hunter being told that we, you know, you have to go get this investigation stopped. Well, what happened after that email? That email was on November 2nd, 2015. The very same day, Hunter reached out to Amos Hochstein, who was a, uh, an important official in the Obama department. Hochstein later, uh, he, was, he was being deposed, and he grudgingly admitted that, yes, Hunter wanted him to talk, talk to him about Burisma. Less than three weeks later, on November 22nd, that is when, Hunter, that is when Joe Biden formally asked that this new prosecutor, Victor Shokin, who was making real headway with the investigation into Burisma, be fired. Well, Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Good to be here. Thank you. Coming up, $2.1 billion more to Ukraine. How much money has the U.S. spent on the war? As a dispute over sending the defense funds unfolds on Capitol Hill, tensions spark from within the Republican Party and new evidence about the major dam breach in southern Ukraine. Find out what Kyiv overheard in a call and what U.S. satellites observed. That and more after the break. Welcome back. The Department of Defense sending another $2.1 billion to Ukraine today. That brings the total number of U.S. tax dollars committed to the country up to $40 billion. This says lawmakers on Capitol Hill are at odds over pushing an extra defense spending package as a way to circumvent agreements made in the debt ceiling bill. Entities Melina Weiskup has more on the split between House and Senate Republicans. The Pentagon is sending over $2 billion to Ukraine for defense systems and ammunition. This, as President Biden said earlier this week, that Washington will continue to have the funding that it needs to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. This is despite growing Republican opposition from Congress. Now, this issue specifically sheds light on some fractions that we're seeing within the Republican Party right now over defense spending. Some Republican senators are discontent with the $886 billion defense spending cap set for this year in that debt ceiling bill that Congress took up. Some Republicans say they feel this is not enough to combat the geopolitical threats that we're now facing. But in an effort to win over those skeptical Republicans in the Senate, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that there would be room for a, an additional supplemental defense spending package later on. McConnell earlier this week reiterating that point. The government's work to provide for the common defense remains unfinished. Now, this is directly at odds with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who has pointed fingers at Senate Republicans over this issue. I've got a challenge over there on the Senate side with even Senate Republicans who now just want to blow up the deal to spend more money. Speaker McCarthy has committed to not bringing any additional defense spending to the floor for a vote. His position is that if the Pentagon needs more funding for certain initiatives, they should change the way they allocate funds. He specifically pointed to the fact that the Pentagon has recently failed its fifth consecutive audit for accounting. It was unable to account for 61% of the $3.5 trillion in assets. We spoke to some House members on this issue, but they were hesitant to give their position. Take a look. You know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Let's not 
try and hustle one right now because uh, then everybody else is going to want their turn at it. Now the deadline for Congress to pass its appropriations bills is just four months from now. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And Ukraine says it has evidence that Russia was behind the collapse of a major dam. Meanwhile, Russia announces when it plans to send nuclear weapons to Belarus. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest. Evidence is mounting. Ukraine Security Service says it intercepted a phone call proving that Russia was behind the explosion of the Novokokovka Dam in southern Ukraine. The nation's domestic security agency posted the audio recording on its Telegram channel, in which an alleged Russian soldier admitted that the dam was blasted by their sabotage group. Norway's research foundation Norsar said that data collected from regional seismic stations showed clear signals of an explosion. And Washington official told the New York Times that U.S. spy satellites also detected the blast. The Novokokovka Dam collapsed on early Tuesday, which unleashed mass flooding and forced thousands of residents out of their home. On Friday, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that the nation would resolve the numerous challenges brought by the dam breach. And I am sure, no matter how difficult it may be, we will overcome the consequences of this disaster and all Russian evil. Hundreds of Ukrainians were rescued from rooftop in the flood areas during the week. Meanwhile, in Russia, President Vladimir Putin said the Kremlin will deploy nuclear weapons to his neighboring ally Belarus once the storage facilities are ready to go in July. Worth noting, this will be Russia's first time transferring weapons outside of its border since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Putin first announced the deployment back in March in an effort to warn NATO over its support for Ukraine. The leader has been saying that the West is planning for a proxy war, threatening Russia. As of now, Russia's nuclear stockpile remains the largest in the world. The U.S. and its Western allies are watching closely as Kremlin doubles down on its war in Ukraine. Sam Wong, NTD News. The White House released an intelligence finding today suggesting that Iran is assisting Russia to build a drone factory east of Moscow. U.S. officials believe that the plant will be in full operation by early next year. In Europe, official figures show an abnormally high death rate in 2021 and 2022. The phenomenon seems to be continuing into 2023. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. In some European countries, more people died in 2022 than during the peak of the COVID crisis. In France, official mortality published earlier this week shows 58,000 excess deaths in 2022 compared to the expected rate. In UK, this number is 40,000. Pierre Chaillot is a statistician who created an open-source program to monitor official health data. He said the increase of mortality in France is a broad trend observed since 2021. It starts in July 2021, continues past July 2022. We've had a huge increase in mortality from July 2022 to the present day. The latest figures from around April 2023 show exactly the same excess mortality. The number of young people and middle-aged adults who are dying is too high. This is obvious. The data website Euromomo publishes mortality data from Europe and is considered a reliable tool by government health agencies. It also shows a sharp increase of deaths. You realize this couldn't possibly be random. There are far too many points above the red dotted line. So it starts well in 2021, and then the trend continues. So we do have a problem, raised by Euromomo. And they saw it right at the end, from the start of 2022. Journalists have been looking to find reasons for this excess in death rate. 
In France, outlet The Echoes says this is due to summer heat waves and the flu, among other reasons. Chaillot says the reasons he read in the media outlets were not convincing and not backed by studies, and they don't explain why this is a widespread phenomenon. He says he found one correlation that could explain the mortality. The excess of deaths occurred during successive vaccine campaigns in several EU countries. I detailed the results we had for around 15 European countries for which we have data for all age groups. And I compared them with the calculated excess mortality. I compared the doses of vaccine received just below and it's clear that this corresponds to a little too often. We even ran statistics to check that the peaks were simultaneous. And the statistics tell us that it's far too frequent to be random. David Gives, NTD News, Paris. Up next, companies using liberal social issues to advertise and appeal to customers. A new poll shows most Americans don't share those views. We explore why companies are still promoting these ideas. People and businesses leaving California have been making headlines in recent months. One industry expert shares with NTD which company he thinks will be the next to leave. And with a surge in opioid-related deaths, Congress tries to tackle the crisis. Lawmakers are looking for solutions to save American lives. That and more after the break. Welcome back. A new poll showing over two-thirds of Americans don't have a liberal view on social issues. Yet companies still use such social issues to advertise to consumers. NDD's Arian Pastar spoke with a Wall Street banker to find out possible reasons behind the push. On Thursday, Gallup released its annual Values and Beliefs Survey. 38% of people now say they're conservative on social issues, which is up 5% from last year. At the same time, only 29% say they're liberal on those issues, down 5% from last year. Last year, the numbers were split evenly. This new poll comes in the light of multiple companies suffering financial losses after including social issues in their advertisements. To explore this issue, I spoke with Kevin Stocklin, producer of the new documentary, The Shadow State, an investigation of the ESG industry. If people don't seem to agree with those social issues, why do companies use them to advertise to consumers? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And, and one could wonder, companies like Target uh, and Anheuser-Busch and Disney and Coca-Cola, why would they behave this way? In fact, they're acting very rationally. They are acting um, in response to what the majority of their shareholders want. Stocklin points out a major conflict of interest about shareholders these days which is that three-quarters of all publicly traded stocks are not held by the people who paid for them, but by fund managers such as BlackRock, Vanguard and others. And they are pushing very hard to have corporate America align with what are called the ESG goals, environmental, social and governance. Those goals include climate issues, racial topics and more. And even though such investments often don't bring returns, Stockland says the fund managers don't suffer the losses, but the people do. Ultimately, the shareholders, pensioners, retirees, savers, we all take a hit. But the asset managers who are going to earn fees regardless whether the price goes up or down, they're the ones who are actually controlling the share votes. They're the ones who actually get to control the CEOs and the corporate executives. But why do the fund managers push those ESG goals? 
Stocklin says that's because many of them have joined organizations such as the World Economic Forum or Climate Action 100. So many of these asset managers today have now signed pledges with these clubs that across their entire portfolios, they will enforce this ESG agenda. However, BlackRock denies allegations of following ESG goals. A company representative testified before the Texas state court in December. You're saying that you have absolutely no bias and you don't have any, any tilting towards an ESG, ESG score whatsoever. Um, Senator, we have one bias, and that's to get the best risk-adjusted returns for our clients. That is our bias. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. In recent months, headlines have been filled with businesses leaving the Golden State, insurance companies ending coverage for Californians, and large corporations relocating their headquarters elsewhere. NTD's David Jang spoke to John Boyd, a corporate site selection expert, to hear more about which company could be next to leave. Thank you for joining us, John. We've been seeing a lot of headlines on companies and businesses leaving California. Which company do you think is the next one to move its headquarters out of California? Is it going to be Chevron, Wells Fargo, or Twitter? Well, a lot of industry analysts, myself included, expect a Twitter relocation in the months ahead. Uh, Twitter is in a cost-cutting mode. A major priority of Twitter is to also rebrand itself. And uh, I can't think of a, of a better way to do that than relocate out of, uh, out of the Bay Area. Twitter is not a, a client of ours. However, we're in, in this business, in this industry. We talk to developers and, and uh, stakeholders on a routine basis. We fully expect Twitter to relocate out of, uh, the, out of the Bay Area. We think northern Nevada would be an ideal location for Twitter, given its proximity to the Bay Area. Uh, Nevada has no corporate or personal income tax. There's a great submarket, Minden, Nevada, which has uh, available and attractive land. It's just south of Reno, which is one of the nation's hottest growing tech markets where uh, Tesla has its first gigafactory. As the inflation, crimes, COVID-19 lockdown, taxation or regulation? Well, it's the marriage of, of those factors, the softened economy, the, the inflation uh, crisis, the uh, new preference for companies to embrace this hybrid work model, this era of unprecedented mobility for workers, uh, and, and this crime issue, and this accommodating attitude that too many California lawmakers have for crime, for homelessness, for incessant panhandling, for brazen shoplifting, okay? Uh, there's a, a feeling that job creators and taxpayers are getting a better return on their dollar in, in winning states like Nevada, Texas, Florida, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Arizona, Utah. I mean, these are the, the states attracting people, companies, and new uh, taxable income. California is the fifth largest economy in the world. It's a diverse state, home to many rich resources. It, has, it enjoys unique linkages to the global marketplace. Uh, and, and many key industries, it's the largest consumer market in the U.S. It's home to major research institutions and colleges and universities and, and venture capital money. Uh, but that said, you know, fixing California will take real solutions. Okay, this never-ending cycle of borrowing, taxing, and spending, record deficits, of having a permissible attitude towards crime and homelessness. Uh, though, but I, I don't sense a, a real political will to really turn the ship around. It's going to take difficult decisions, things like tax cutting and pension reform and, and real law and order policies to make California competitive again. Great, well, thank you so much, John. Thank you for your insights. Sure.
Lawmakers are looking for solutions to help stop the opioid crisis and save American lives. This comes as the U.S. is facing a surge in opioid-related deaths. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. In the last 18 months, my district has experienced an over 600% increase in the number of fentanyl-related deaths. Representative Jay Obernolte of California is a member of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, which held a hearing on Friday to address the opioid crisis. Uh, my most difficult day in 19 years of public office was last fall when I had a constituent lose both of her sons in the same afternoon to the same fentanyl poisoning incident. And Representative John Joyce mentioned this. This is a scourge upon America. And drug overdoses, which in recent years, as Chair Guthrie just pointed out, have taken over 100,000 American lives annually, leaving behind the devastation to family, to friends, to coworkers. Police Chief William Saravola of Pennsylvania said that Narcan, a drug that reverses the effect of an opioid overdose, has saved many people's lives. But he said some officers he's worked with won't use it. Um, I've actually uh, have had some law enforcement officers tell me they're not going to bother. That person did it to themselves. And I explained to them, you need to do that because, one, it could be your coworker that was affected. Um, more importantly, you're saving that person's family. The committee also looked for ways to improve the Support Act. It was signed into law in 2018 by former President Donald Trump to address the opioid crisis. And it expanded Medicaid coverage for treating substance abuse, among other things. But many of the provisions in the Support Act are set to expire later this year. And lawmakers ask witnesses how to improve it. Um, I would suggest extending um, care to loved ones. Because, like we heard from Mr. Straley, when you lose a loved one, you, you have a hole in your heart. And a lot of people do not know how to handle that moving forward. Or when you love someone with a substance use disorder, a lot of families don't know where to get help. So approaching this from a whole family approach and wrapping our arms around not just the person with a substance use disorder, but everyone around them that's affected by them, providing more resources for them to go to get help. And Mike Straley, who lost his daughter to a drug overdose, said there should be more funding for treatment centers. I would say more funding for treatment centers and also sober living homes. And, you know, certainly in our rural area, um, in Franklin County, we have one um, sober living facility for women and one facility for men. Um, and... They're, they're constantly at, at, at full capacity. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up in baseball, a Christian player shares a social media post that some called hateful towards the LGBTQ community. Today, he's let go just hours before the team's Pride Night. And picturesque views and superb waves for surfing or hazards lurking in the water. Find out how a California team is working to keep beaches clean and safe. Stay tuned for more when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, I understand there was some baseball controversy today as Toronto let go of pitcher Anthony Bass, who is a professed Christian. What were the events that led up to this? 
Yeah, certainly some controversy. Now, Bass, as you mentioned, he's a Christian. Back on May 29, he reposted a video that explained, from a Christian perspective, why they should be boycotting Target and Bud Light after their recent LGBTQ promotions. Uh, now, both brands have obviously taken a big financial hit because of these LGBTQ promotions. It's also important to note that in baseball, uh, there are plenty of teams that have Pride Nights. In fact, Toronto's Pride Weekend is this weekend. Now, after he posted that, the next day he deleted it and he also issued an apology. Now, it's not clear if this apology was like requested of him by either Major League Baseball or by Toronto. We're not really sure of that. Anyway, nine days later, uh, yesterday, he also he made a comment saying he did not think what he posted was hateful, and I guess that caused another stir again. Well, today, just hours before their Toronto's own Pride Night, he was released. Now, I'm not saying you know Bass was an all-star pitcher. He he was not an all-star pitcher. He put up very good numbers last year. This year, he was a little bit back to earth. But I mean, we're not even halfway through the season yet. Uh, still, the timing seems you know suspicious to say the least. In fact, you know, it reminds me of in the NBA last year when Ennis Freedom was released after he had spoken out about human rights abuses that are going on in China. Definitely a lot of controversy here as you mentioned and now switching gears a little bit to basketball. We do have game four of the NBA Finals tonight. What's your take on the series thus far? You know, it's, it's been like a tale of three games. You know, the, the Nuggets in game one, they just pounded the ball to Aaron Gordon and took advantage of Miami's small ball lineup because the Heat really couldn't do much because their center had to guard Nikola Jokic when he ventures out on the three-point line. Now, Miami eventually figured out that a zone was, you know, a pretty good um, way to counter that, but it was kind of too late by the time that happened. Game two, they also, they, they were doing zone and plus they were actually doing a trap on Murray whenever he tried to do that pick and roll with Jokic in the fourth quarter, which was a brilliant move, I thought, by Eric Spolstra. Anyway, they were down for the first three quarters, but then in the fourth quarter, they got in this big run to open up the lead, never looked back, and they took game two. Game three, then Wednesday, you got the feeling that the Nuggets were sick and tired of focusing on what Miami would do on defense. It almost looked like they had forgotten what they needed to do on defense. They were much better on defense in Game 3. And then Jokic and Murray both had big triple doubles. It was quite a performance by them. I will say that I was surprised at the end of the game. I thought Spolstra, you know, kind of gave up a little bit early. I don't know if it's gave up, but he... He pulled most of the starters with like two minutes left. Granted, they had been down 20, but Denver kind of lost their aggressiveness when they were trying to run clock, and Miami was actually starting to come back. I, I think another number of people were a little bit confused by that. And Dave, given all of that, who do you have winning tonight then? <laughs> you know, I have picked against Miami at almost every round except for the Knicks. I think they're going to win tonight. I think Jimmy Butler is going to come out, you know, on fire like I think he's really gonna be aggressive I mean pretty much they have to win tonight if they fall down 3-1 three games left two are in Denver that's gonna be really tough it's also gonna hinge on their three-point shooting uh, which you know this postseason they've been shooting it very well you know much as much to the surprise of all of us including me 
And Dave, moving on to tennis now, Novak Djokovic scored a big win in the semifinals today over the youngster Carlos Alcaraz. What do you think this means for men's tennis? You know, I think it means that that threesome of Djokovic, I'm sorry, Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer, who have been dominating men's tennis for the last 20 years, it's still not over. I know Federer has retired, but that's only because of injury. Nadal, he hasn't played since January because of an injury, but if he was in this tournament, he'd be favored. Djokovic is the youngest of them at 36. He beat the number one guy today who's ranked, who is just 20 years old. I will also grant that Djokovic would probably be ranked higher had he not missed some tournaments because of his vaccination status. But anyway, you know, the match today, they were tied at, uh, they were tied at one set apiece in the third uh, set. Alcarez then got injured. He started having cramps, and that was game over. Djokovic took the next 10 games, and he rolled to a win. And now what this sets up is Sunday. If Djokovic wins, that'll be Grand Slam title number 23. He will stand head and shoulders as the best in men's tennis. Well, lots happening in the sports world. Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. Southern California is known for its picturesque beaches, pristine sunset, and superb surf. But things aren't always as they appear. NTD's Christina Corona does a deep dive to find out whether there are any hazards lurking in the waters at your favorite beach. I've been hitting the Southern California waves for years and years, and one of my favorite things to do is spend the day boogie boarding. But before you take a dip into the Pacific Ocean, there are a few things you need to know about. Sharks, jellyfish, and nine-foot waves used to keep us all out of the water. But one Southland organization says there are other risks we should be aware of before we don our swimsuits and take the big plunge. Luke Ginger, a water quality specialist with Heal the Bay, tells us what his decades-old organization is doing to keep our beaches and other waterways cleaner, safer, and pollution-free. Heal the Bay has achieved a lot of significant progress over the years. Uh, most notably, we've gotten a lot of legislation in place that will uh, keep pollution out of the ocean and out of the lakes, rivers, and streams. And also, uh, we've passed legislation to reduce single-use plastics so we won't have trash uh, floating around in the ocean. The trash generated by one person doesn't seem substantial, but when multiplied by hundreds of thousands of people littering, it can lead to serious global issues. It's important to keep our oceans clean because uh, the earth, the well-being of all of humanity relies on a healthy ecosystem. So the ocean provides a lot of services that folks aren't necessarily thinking about. It's where people get food, um, it's uh, how we transport goods, and it's also how the earth gets its oxygen. On top of trash, pollutants, and debris, there are other dangerous health hazards that can wreak havoc on our shared waters. For example, sewage spills. This week alone, there were two large sewage spills here in Los Angeles County. There was another spill in Long Beach, um, uh, upstream from the ocean in the LA River. That was a 50,000 gallon spill. And uh, that could pose a health risk to humans because it contains a lot of uh, pathogens and viruses that can get people sick. The last thing this reporter needs is a bellyache and a missed week of work. Whether you're tanning along the coast, swimming near the shoreline, or simply dipping your toes into the clear ocean water, it's important to stay mindful of beach warnings and hazards before you jump in and try to catch that perfect wave. 
Christina Corona, NTD News, Santa Monica. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.